0: Well, as we continue to make our way through uh, this inspired portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ in the account of Matthew we turn to two of the most clearest illustrations of the joy and value of the kingdom of heaven in Matthew. These parables follow after the parables of the sower, the weeds, the mustard seed and the leaven which Jesus told out in public before great crowds as we see in chapter 13 verse But after that public teaching ministry through these parables, Jesus went away, as verse 36 says, into the house, which is given no identity as to whose house it is. We are probably to take away from this fact simply that Jesus is no longer out in the open, but he's in private with his disciples. This fits what Jesus has been doing. He has been... Uh, giving parables without any explanation to the crowds, but when he gets along with his disciples, he explains the parables to them, uh, because it is to them that the secrets of the kingdom belong, not to the world. The parables of the hidden treasure and a pearl of great price fit into that private instruction portion of the context, and it is these parables that we want to look at this morning From our exposition, I want us to focus our attention first on the parable of the hidden treasure, second on the parable of the pearl of great price, and finally on some applications of the parables. That's the direction we're headed this morning. We start with the parable of the hidden treasure. In this parable, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to hidden treasure. He says again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure in a field which a man found and then covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Uh, The idea of treasure or other valuables being buried in the ground is a concept somewhat removed from our 21st century practices, right? We like to keep our belongings locked in a safe, yes, or um, safe in in a bank or something. But in that day, you didn't have those privileges, and it was often the custom during unstable times like wartime to bury your valuables in the ground near your dwelling place. Of course, if if you die and you never leave like a trace or a treasure map, those valuables remain buried for someone to potentially find. Nevertheless, this was a common practice of the day. It's also not too far-fetched to imagine that Jesus uses the parable of finding hidden treasure, because there is something in all of us that gravitates toward this idea. I don't know about you, but when I was a, a boy, I, I used to like to take my, uh, my papa's metal detector out into the, the pasture and uh, look for, you know, buried treasure. Surely it's some pirate buried some treasure in the ground or something, and uh, I was waiting for the beep, 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 beep. <laughs> Never happened, but uh, probably found a spoon or something, but never came up across that the treasure but I always kind of wanted to as a boy I dreamed about it yeah anybody else in here have that yes yes well apparently this dream it doesn't die with youth there is this account from the Greco-Roman literature where a hired field worker dreamed about finding treasure in his boss's field and see if this sounds familiar he said, oh, that some lucky strike would disclose me to a pot of money like the man who, having found a treasure trove, bought and plowed the self same ground he used to work on higher. That account sounds a whole lot like the account of, of Jesus here with his parable, which means that it was probably a common hope of all kinds of people around that time. In the parable, Jesus tells, though, the man is not looking for the treasure. Did you notice that? he seems to kind of like stumble upon it or happen upon it. And when he finds it, he can't help but figure out how he's going to get a hold, get a hold of it. So what he did was he, he buries the treasure again, goes and sells all his possession and buys the field so he can have undisputed rightful ownership of it. Now, at this point, people uh, have a tough time with the ethics of the story. Uh, the man is on someone else's land and he discovers hidden treasure on that land. Um, Was the treasure not the rightful possession of the person who owns the land? You know, we kind of think about that with, I guess, mineral rights or other kind of rights that you have if you own a piece of property or something. But MacArthur points to some laws of the day that the rabbis taught. And uh, he says that the rabbinic law provided that if a man finds scattered fruit, Or money, it belongs to the finder. If a person came across money or other valuables that were obviously lost and whose owner was dead or unknown, the finder had the right to keep what was found. So there's a chance possibility that the parable Jesus tells falls within that rabbinic law. Uh, But at the end of the day, what Jesus is telling here is a parable, right? Right? And the point which he is communicating is not one in which the ethics of the man's actions are his primary concern. The point really is that Jesus wants to tell a parable that highlights the joy that comes to the one who wants the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is showing how this man, when he found a hidden treasure, was filled with joy. And his joy was so great he went out and liquidated everything everything he owned to possess that treasure and the kingdom of heaven says jesus is like that when a person who has had their spiritual eyes open to the value of the kingdom of heaven they are filled with joy the word for joy simply means the experience of gladness it's what the angel of the lord said to the shepherds in the field Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news here is the gospel, the euangelion, which is a message that produces great joy and a receptive heart that knows it needs a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Joy then is something that comes to the heart that has been saved by the gospel. Joy is what the Holy Spirit wants to produce in the hearts of God's people. We know this from Galatians 5.22 where the Apostle Paul says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. The indwelling Holy Spirit wants to cause certain attitudes in His people to grow and one of those attitudes is an attitude of joy. Joy is also what we are to carry with us through trials and the Trial itself might be very difficult and hard. That boss or that job or that spouse or that bank account, the trial might be very hard, but as James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And and notice why. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's not that we are to enjoy the trial necessarily. We don't have to have a morbid gladness for pain or hardship, but what we do need to do is have joy in what the difficulty produces in us. It strengthens us to persevere to the end of our lives, kind of like weight training. We train the muscles by loading them with weight so they can endure more and become stronger. That's like our spiritual lives. We take joy in the fact that the pain produces perseverance. We take joy also in the fact that the Bible says this life isn't all there is. (laughs) And aren't you glad about that? We are longing for the day that we will see Christ face to face. Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, Now you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter says we rejoice with joy. We are overjoyed by the fact that one day we will see our Lord and we will no longer be embattled in the spiritual fight that is a part of our existence, no longer under trials, no longer will our work contend with thorns and thistles, No longer will sadness or sorrow be our experience. We we, we will be in the presence of our Lord forever, filled with everlasting, unbreakable joy. Aren't you glad that that's a promise for us? Oh, what joy now and for all eternity is found in the kingdom of heaven. But Someone might say, Matt, you're making too much of this joy. I respectfully contest (laughs) the scriptures. We just looked at show the significance of joy in the life of believer. But notice from Paul, he gives the ingredients of the kingdom of God, asking the question, what is the content of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven? In other words, what things are included in this kingdom of Christ that is already and not yet? Notice what Paul says. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is a matter of joy, among other things, as Paul says. It's a big deal. That means we can't just blow past joy in our thinking about the kingdom of heaven. It's an attitude that God wants to birth in the heart of, sustain throughout the life of, Bring to completion when Christ returns and grant endlessly in the life to come. Joy is significant and it is a part of the already and not yet of the kingdom of heaven. And the reason we as Christians have joy is not because, this is important, we're chasing after joy. In other words, we don't want joy for joy's sake. Joy is a byproduct of the pursuit in each of us, which is the pursuit of God alone. We want God. We want to know Him. We want to love Him. We want to praise Him. And as we do, we find joy in Him. Amen? Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. <laughs> At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's in His presence, church, that we find joy. We can't find it anywhere else. And yet as sinful humans, we try to find joy in temporary things, right? Our flesh just gravitates toward the transient. But experience teaches all of us that things in this life can't sustain our happiness, right? We try to get our hands around some proverbial treasure and it may bring a fleeting moment of happiness, but it flies away very quickly, doesn't it? Cars that we have break. Money we possess is very quickly spent. Houses we own get outdated. Thank you, Chip and Joanna Gaines. (laughs) Clothes we wear unravel and fall apart. It's like the saying, the new wears off and the old shines through. You know, Jesus speaks to these very things. We... Learned in the Sermon on the Mount about this, didn't we? Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The old wears off and the old, the new wears off and the old shines through. Jesus wants us to find the kingdom of heaven to be our treasure. It's a kingdom that has no end. It's not subject to decay. It's not part of the transient world around us, but the kingdom of heaven is eternal. And therein is our joy in the kingdom of heaven that is already and not yet. Now looking back at the parable, we see that the, the joy of the man who found the hidden treasure He was led to do something. What did he do? Well, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Uh, He is so full of joy that nothing will prevent him from having this treasure. In fact, he proves that by going out and liquidating everything he owns to get this field. He sacrificed everything to have the treasure. Now, with this part of the parable, Jesus wants to show the reality that possessing the kingdom requires sacrifice. Someone who wants the kingdom of heaven recognizes it as a treasure. And in recognizing it as treasure, he will go to great lengths to secure that treasure. So in the same way that the man has to buy the field to attain the treasure, so also does the person need to walk away from whatever prevents them from possessing the kingdom. The next parable, we get more of the same idea, so let's go to that one. The parable of the pearl of great price. Jesus tells of a merchant who finds that precious, priceless pearl. As the parable goes, again we read, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. Pearls were considered to be the most valuable objects in the entire universe in that day. Uh, Pliny, the Roman author from the first century A.D., wrote that Pearls were the topmost rank among all things of price. He accounts for two pearls that Cleopatra owned that were worth 10 million sesterces, and that amounts to over 180 million American dollars in our day. Imagine holding a couple of objects that were formed inside of a shell at the bottom of the ocean worth more than the Beverly House in California couple of valuable pearls so pearls were very valuable in that day and that's why men would get on ships risk their lives to travel tempestuous seas and search for pearls of great price like the merchant in the parable he's looking for pearls but not just any pearls he's searching for the text says find pearls his interests don't lie in accumulating a mass of minimally valuable pearls he wants the best And as the parable goes, he finds one. Many merchants have failed to lay claim to a pearl like this one. They spend all their lives searching but never finding. This man, however, has the good fortune of coming across the pearl of a lifetime. And of course, notice what he does. The merchant gives up everything to secure this pearl. As one preacher once invited his congregation to try and picture this man. He said this. He said, imagine... This man standing on the street corner with nothing to his name but a pearl in the palm of his hand. All he has on his back is a single pair of clothes because he sold off the rest of his wardrobe. His mode of transportation, sold. All the furniture in his house, gone. His comfortable, luxurious home, sold. Whatever else he had to his name, he no longer has. He stands satisfied on that street corner with nothing in his hand and nothing to his name but a pearl now is jesus point in this parable meant to communicate that a member of the kingdom of heaven must welcome poverty in other words in order for you and i to be sons of the kingdom must we be financially poor is that the point of the text i submit to us that that's not the case Jesus is not saying that poverty equals spirituality. That's to read into this text more than what is actually there. And it's in fact to commit the opposite error of the prosperity gospel, which says that prosperity equals spirituality. Okay? Both extremes of a so-called gospel of prosperity or a gospel of poverty are to be rejected in light of the true biblical gospel, which is the gospel according to the Lord Jesus. The gospel according to Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom, is a message which puts before us something of such worth that nothing in all the universe is as valuable in comparison. And because of that, nothing should be held back from this king of this kingdom. He is worth everything. The story of the rich young ruler, which Pastor Ben made reference to last week, shows us, a man who had one thing in his life that he loved more than the prospect of following Christ. So Jesus challenged him that if you would enter life, let me get there, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I've kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. By this story, we should not take that Jesus is saying that we can be saved by doing the works of the law. Instead, we should recognize that Jesus is challenging this man on the very point his heart is resistant to the gospel. He really has one idol in his life that reigns supreme. And in this moment in his life, he has before him two options. One is to see the surpassing value of the kingdom of heaven or two to hold on to his kingdom. Will he submit to the kingdom of god or will he continue in the kingdom of self well jesus knew what was in his heart and he drew it out in this moment this man really didn't want jesus and he held on to the one thing in his life that kept him from the kingdom and it was his covetousness his love for the things of this world and this goes to show All it takes is one habitual sin to keep a person out of the kingdom of heaven. Just one thing we try to make a deal with God on and say, God, I'll give you all these things, but this sin over here I really, really love. I'm going to hold on to that one. It's all it takes to keep a sinner from receiving the free forgiveness of sins and entrance into the kingdom of heaven. One area that shows we really aren't willing to value Jesus above all else but that is not what happens in the heart of a person who has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. What happens in the heart of a regenerated, born-again heart is a renovation of that heart that says, I hate my sin. I hate that I have offended a holy and righteous God. I, I hate it that the Creator who created me in His image, I have in my life been an offense against. And I look unto the cross of Jesus Christ where God sent His Son to die on the cross for my sins. And I trust fully that what He did on that cross absorbed the full penalty of wrath against me. And then in believing that and recognizing that this Jesus who hung on this cross and rose from this grave, as history tells us and the scripture records, this Jesus Christ is worth everything and he's worth way more than any sin that's worth holding on to. And so in that moment and in that heart is a, a recognition and a work of the Holy Spirit that through a new heart sees the value of the Lord Jesus and forsakes all else. Now, is that a heart that never sins? No, we battle the flesh daily. We are in progressive sanctification. So it's not as if we should say that now being saved, we will never sin. Actually, in 1 John, John the Apostle denies that anybody who says they're they're without sin is a liar and the truth is not in them. So that's not what we claim, and that's not the gospel that Jesus taught. But what he did teach is that when we come across having new eyes to see and a regenerated heart, the kingdom of heaven, we see that as a pearl and as a treasure that's worth more than anything in this world. And nothing is worth holding on to in order to enjoy him and walk with him. Amen. So back to the parables here and what we're seeing, we're seeing the cost of following Christ. We need to remember then the cost of following Christ. John MacArthur says if you are unwilling to give up whatever needs to be given up in order to be faithful to Christ, then you're not worthy of Christ. Strong words, but that is precisely what the Lord Jesus calls His followers to, is it not? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37-39 that whoever loves father or mother More than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Nothing can have our heart's affections more than Christ. He demands full devotion, a devotion that is there in seed form when we first get saved, and it flowers throughout the course of our lives. A devotion that is small at justification, but progressively grows throughout our Christian lives in sanctification. But a devotion nonetheless. And so these parables give us some opportunity to reflect on some applications. So I want to give us some applications this morning that are relevant for us. Because obviously these parables are relevant for a person who's never come to Christ for the first time. But these are also relevant for us today as we remember the joy that is to be had by possessing this kingdom. So let's remind ourselves of a couple of things. Number one, we need to remember the cost of valuing Jesus. And on that note, if we're going to continue to value the kingdom of Christ, we must rid ourselves of some things. To use the language of the parables, we need to sell off some things. Uh, Charles Spurgeon suggests a few things that I find helpful for us to be aware of in our walk with Christ. We have to sell off old paradigms. Okay? Old ways of thinking. We cannot think the way that we used to think. Old patterns of our thought life that are not pleasing to God, we have to throw away. We must think differently. Romans 12.2 commands, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We have to be transformed in our minds. Ephesians 4.23 says that we are to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Colossians 3.10 affirms that we have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. We are to think rightly about God and about ourselves in the world in which we live. We're not to entertain old paradigms of the mind. You know, it's important what we think about God, right? A.W. Tozer said that, that, he said that what, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. think he's right about that because what we think about god shapes everything that we do it colors everything that we do it's the world view through which we view the world and then live our lives and if we think wrongly about god that will translate in the way that we live we must think rightly about god we must put away old thinking about god adopt new ways of thinking about god and of course the way that we do that church you know this is by coming to his word right We come to his word to have our minds renewed and inform our minds by the word. John Stott said we must allow the word of God to confront us, to disturb our security, to undermine our complacency, and to overthrow our patterns of thought and behavior. The word of God should reign supreme in our meditations. It is to be our meditation day and night, right? Psalm chapter 1. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We need God's word in our lives, church. It's how we confront old paradigms of thinking that need to be sold off. We also need to sell off our self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is pride. It's prideful because self-righteousness is not the righteousness that God requires, to borrow from the language of James chapter one. It's a righteousness that is engaged in so that we can get a leg up on those around us. It's done so that others will think, oh, how righteous is that person? That's not why we live our Christian lives though, right? For the approval of men? We live our lives for the approval of God, amen? But when the kingdom of heaven breaks in on a soul, the walls of pretense and pride come down, This person no longer must live for the applause of men. They now live for the applause of God. The kingdom of heaven is worth selling off our self-righteousness then. The apostle Paul sold off his, and he said about his self-righteous acts, real simply, I count them as rubbish. They're rubbish. They're worth nothing. Meaningless waste is how Paul viewed them, and that's how we should view prideful self-righteousness. We must sell it off as well. And finally, we must sell off sinful pleasures and practices. Paul said we have to rid ourselves of that old way of living. He, he says to, quote, put off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. Notice this in true righteousness and holiness. We must strip ourselves of old, filthy garments of sin and wear the new, fresh garments of holiness. And the reason for that is because sin was our old master, now we have a new master. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, Therefore, therefore glorify God with your bodies. Church, this is the gospel according to Jesus. And, you know, something relevant, we saw... A commercial here this last week right that was he gets us Um, millions of dollars spent on this commercial right and yet people walked away from that portrait of jesus not knowing the true gospel and that is the sad reality about it and then there was a commercial that was kind of made up after that that showed all these people and who they used to be and who they are now in christ Depicting a true biblical gospel and the true biblical gospel says, yes, you come to God as a sinner in need of justification and, and, and salvation. God meets you right where you are as a sinner and the, the foot of the cross is level for all of us. Amen. But God never leaves us where he keeps us. And 1 Corinthians six tells us that after a litany and a list of all kinds of different practices of sin, Paul says these beautiful words. And such were some of you. You are no longer that anymore because of what Christ has done in your life. We are to sell off old practices, old pleasures, because that's not who we are anymore. One final thing to leave us with is this. In all that we said about the things we leave behind as we follow Christ, we need to remember this. Remember that following Christ far outweighs the cost of what we will walk away from. We have to remember this every single time we confront the world, the flesh, and the devil in our lives. Whatever I have to give up and walk away from, I know because God's word says so, and I've probably experienced this myself, that if I choose the ways of the world over the ways of God, there are consequences that I don't want to have to live with. I want to walk in the fear of the Lord because that's the beginning of wisdom. And so I value the kingdom, and we are to value the kingdom above everything else. And when we stack up the cost of following Christ on one side and the value of Christ on the other side, Christ outweighs it all. Paul said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And brothers and sisters, that is to be the attitude of us every day. We must fight the warfare and fight the battle to put off the old self, put on the new, and remind our minds and remind our hearts that the the cost of following Christ is so little in comparison to how worthy Jesus is. And haven't you experienced that in your life? As you walk with Christ, isn't he so much more valuable than anything else? That's to be our treasure, our heart's desire, what else can compare with a pearl also of God's promises? God has made us unbreakable and valuable promises. We hold on to these daily. Peter says that it has been given to us exceedingly and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom contains exceedingly and precious promises. Let's not let the world, the flesh, the devil, These influences that are after us every single day deceive us from thinking that to walk in any other way than the ways of God, to value anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ is deception and foolish, and we should walk away from it. Let's remember the value of the Lord Jesus every day. He is our joy, right, church? At his right hand, our pleasures forevermore. Let's live that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the treasure of the kingdom of Christ. His kingdom is a kingdom over which he is the king. And we gladly refresh in our hearts this morning and we gladly confess all over again the worth of this king and that submission to him and trust in him is a blessing that we as individuals have experienced over and over and over again. And so Lord, we give you praise and we ask that even this week we would fight for the joy that comes with realizing and walking in the value of the kingdom. That we would find the dictates of the kingdom, the things that are commanded of us from our King to be things that set us free And not things that keep us in bondage. Lord, we love to walk in the ways of the Lord. We love the word of God. Might our hearts demonstrate that again this week. As we fight the battle of the world, of flesh and the devil. It tempts us to value other things more than this kingdom. That is worth giving up everything for. And Father, your promises are exceeding precious and, and true. And we hold on to them today, reminded that this life is not all there is. And that one day, we will leave this place, be glorified, stand in the presence of our King that we have longed to see in this life. And our heart's cry is that we want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We want to be faithful to the kingdom. Use us this week, Lord. Work within our hearts afresh this week to have joy unspeakable that transcends our circumstances, that is put up against the, the weight of, of all the other things that we're called to walk away from and let us walk in that joy. And might the world around us as they see our lives recognize that we are disciple of Je- disciples of Jesus because we have this tremendous joy that transcends circumstances and that is found in this relationship that we have with you, Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray these things, ask these things, help us to fight this battle this week to value this kingdom all over again. We pray this in Jesus' name and everybody said, Amen. Amen.